now six o'clock. Welcome to WRT's local news for Tuesday, November 28th. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. In tonight's news, a new study finds emissions from coal-fired power plants cause more premature deaths than previously estimated. AUW Law School professor is headed to the UN's climate conference in Dubai. And in the second half, student journalists investigate a neo-Nazi march in Madison. The tree frog gets its moment in the spotlight. And an investigative journalist explains why farmers struggle to find funding for conservation projects. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. State lawmakers are circulating bills that would allow Wisconsin to use federal funds to nearly double the number of public electric vehicle charging stations around the state, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. Current law only lets public utility companies charge customers for power at EV stations. That has put Wisconsin behind many other states when it comes to EV infrastructure. But new proposals introduced this week by State Senator Howard Markline, a Republican from Spring Green, and Rep- Representative Nancy Vandermeer, a Republican from Toma, would open the door for private companies to charge drivers by the kilowatt hour. The measures would also bring the state into compliance with a federal program that would give Wisconsin about $78 million to invest in new EV charging stations over the next few years. Wisconsin Department of Transportation Secretary Craig Thompson, an appointee of Governor Tony Evers, said yesterday that he supports these changes. The bills are currently being circulated for co-sponsors and could be taken up as early as January. The latest sign of climate change's impacts is one that Dane County gardeners in particular might notice. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has officially updated the regional plant hardiness zones, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The USDA plant hardiness map gives gardeners information about a given area's average extreme minimum temperature, which informs what can be planted and when. Since the agency's last map was published in 2012, a large chunk of Dane County, including Madison, jumped one zone warmer. In the last decade, the lowest temperature range went from around negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit to negative 15 degrees. But despite the official zone change, experts say local gardeners have likely already adjusted their planting schedules gradually. A packaging plant that has been operating Toma for more than 85 years will shut down in January. Transcontinental Packaging, the plant's current owner, announced the closure this month, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. About 90 people are expected to lose their jobs. The facility has been in operation since 1945 under several different owners. Transcontinental purchased this plant in 2018. A judge tossed out a case against a Mequon official for posting a ballot selfie on Facebook. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Mequon Thienesville School Board member Paul Buzzle faced a felony voter fraud charge after sharing a picture of his completed April 22 ballot online. The charge could have carried more than three years in jail. But this week, an Ozaukee County judge dismissed the case, saying state laws are too vague in terms of social media, and enforcing them in this case could have violated Buzzle's free speech rights. Prosecutors who brought the case have asked the Wisconsin Attorney General's office to issue an opinion on the legal status of ballot selfies. As temperatures drop in winter, local officials and advocates are stepping up efforts to provide shelter for people experiencing homelessness. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, Madison and Dane County officials have recently started putting extra focus on people who are living in their cars. While Madison's largest shelters provide space for individual men and women, there are far fewer options for couples or families. 
According to officials, many people in those groups end up living in their cars. This winter, the city and county are looking to provide additional services to car campers. That includes giving new money to street service organizations who can assess the day-to-day -day needs of people living in their cars. Longer term, officials are considering broader efforts to provide services, including a dedicated car camping lot. The Madison chapter of a national cancer support organization is celebrating 15 years of operation and is expanding its programming. Gilda's Club Madison provides cancer education, free community support, and other services to adults and children. NBC 15 reports the organization hosted an anniversary reception this week and announced new initiatives, including a Spanish language support program, as well as one geared towards caregivers of children with cancer. And on this Giving Tuesday, Madison's Empty Stockings Club has announced the details of their annual holiday toy giveaway program. Families in need can shop for free toys at the Alliant Energy Center on December 14th and 15th. The program purchases thousands of toys using private donations and is assisted by volunteers. This year, they are partnering with the Madison Reading Project to provide books as well. Those interested in attending to find gifts should apply by December 7th on the Empty Stockings Club website. And now on to today's top stories. New research found emissions from coal-fired power plants resulted in nearly half a million premature deaths in the United States over the past two decades. That's more than previous estimates, prompting urgent calls to accelerate the use of clean energy sources and establish stricter regulations. Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Researchers are out with new findings they say show that death rates linked to air pollution from coal plants are underestimated. A Wisconsin environmental group hopes the study compels quicker action to cut harmful emissions. The study, led by experts at a handful of U.S. universities, found that over the past two decades, there were 460,000 premature deaths nationally associated with fine particulate matter sent into the air from coal-fired power plants. That's more than what health and scientific communities had previously thought. Kieran Gallagher with the group Clean Wisconsin says while coal facilities are being phased out, utilities and policymakers should speed up the energy transition. A lot of wind and solar is being added to the electricity grid every day, which is really exciting to see in Wisconsin across the Midwest, and it just needs to ramp up faster. Utilities around the U.S. have announced emissions goals, but some companies contend certain fossil fuels can't be completely put to rest right away because of electricity demands while cleaner sources are added. But Gallagher says the regulatory scene in states like Wisconsin makes it easier for utilities to move the goalposts. She's hopeful stricter standards being weighed by the federal EPA will prompt stronger commitments. Gallagher has analyzed the proposed regulations and says that in Wisconsin, they could result in nearly $50 million in broader health benefits by reducing the impact of respiratory illnesses and cardiovascular disease. $50 million is a massive benefit for Wisconsinites to see in health benefits from the closed coal plants in our state. She says the new study might mean that the health benefits could even be higher. Federal data show that coal contributed to 36% of Wisconsin's electricity generation in 2022, down from more than half as recently as 2018. Meanwhile, study authors show that the rate of deaths from coal pollution began to slow as more plants were being shut down. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org.
It's now 6.14 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This year's United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP28, is kicking off on Thursday. Dubai in the United Arab Emirates is hosting the proceedings where nations from around the world will debate and negotiate climate change-related policies. Professor Sumudu Adapatu is the director of the Global Legal Studies Center at the University of Wisconsin Law School. She'll be attending the conference, focusing on the relationship between human rights and the climate. She spoke to WORT news producer Faye Parks earlier this afternoon. Thank you for joining me, Sumudu. Thank you for having me. So you're the director of the Global Legal Studies Center at UW-Madison Law School. What sort of topics have you focused on or taught lately as it relates to climate change and policy? This semester, I'm teaching international human rights law. Uh, Today's lecture was actually on environmental issues and climate change. But I do teach a separate course on climate law and human rights. My focus has been looking at the intersection between human rights and climate change. Can you give me an overview of that? How exactly do they relate to each other? If you look at the consequences of climate change, starting with weather events all the way down to water shortages and food shortages, climate change has a huge impact on the lives of people everywhere. And that means that their enjoyment of rights can be affected by the consequences of climate change. So whether you look at right to life because people have died as a result of these severe weather events and climate-related issues, to right to health because climate change has a huge impact on people's health, including mental health, water shortages, food shortages, and climate migration because people are displaced as a result of climate change or forced to move as a result of climate change. So that has an impact on rights as well. Many of the protected rights can be affected by climate change. So that's what I study. And then you also have small island states that might become uninhabitable because of climate change. And some small islands associated with these states have disappeared due to sea level rise associated with climate change and, again, these extreme weather events. And the UN has recognized that some of these islands could become uninhabitable in 10 to 15 years' time. Climate change has a huge impact on the lives of people and the enjoyment of rights. So you mentioned the United Nations, and you're actually attending this year's climate conference, which will be happening starting this Thursday. So for listeners who aren't familiar with this annual meeting, what normally takes place over the course of this conference? So every year, the conference of parties, those are the states that have signed on to the climate agreement, meet every year at different locations around the world. And this year's meeting will be in Dubai, and it's the 28th such meeting. So they have an agenda every year. They come up with different sort of things to focus on. But this year's COP is particularly important because under the Paris Agreement, states agreed to what is called the global stock take. In other words, this is their report card 
to see how states have fared with the commitments they have made under the Paris Agreement called the Nationally Determined Contributions or NDCs. So states have to report on what progress or lack of it (laughs) that they have made with regard to the emission reduction commitments they made under the Paris Agreement. And this is taking place in Dubai for the first time. So they have to report every five years. And this is the first time that states will be reporting. So this year's COP is particularly important from that point of view. In addition to the official negotiations, there are lots of side events that NGOs and other groups put together, and that will be taking place alongside the official negotiations as well. Just to clarify, this is the first stock take that's happened? That's right, yeah. And so what specifically are they evaluating? What kind of agreements are they going to be looking back on? As I mentioned, under the Paris Agreement, states work asked to come up with their national commitments. That means the emission reduction targets that they will implement at the national level. So the stock take is to see how each state is doing with regard to the commitments they made under the Paris Agreement. So whether they are meeting those commitments, where they are, and in addition to the stock take, states are also required to increase their ambition, increase the level of commitments they made. So they have to come up with their increased ambition as well, in addition to the stock take, basically, the report card. I'm curious, too, you mentioned that sometimes, or more often than not, nations aren't successful when it comes to meeting their goals. How much do these negotiations actually affect climate change policy internationally? And what are the consequences if nations don't follow through? Well, your question actually relates to one of the major drawbacks of the international system itself, because international law is based more on cooperation than on imposing sanctions on non-complying states. And the sanctions are usually limited to the security realm, uh, so international peace and security, uh, which falls within the mandate of the UN Security Council. With regard to other areas, states have to cooperate with one another and, you know, try and fulfill their obligations in good faith. If they don't do that, then it's really hard to, you know, hold their feet to the fire, basically. But these negotiations are important because it gives the forum a place for states to talk about their problems they have in implementing, negotiate something that's workable for everybody. Of course, as you can imagine, when almost 200 states are negotiating, it becomes quite contentious because States are different. They have different agendas, different levels of development, different problems. So on the one hand, it becomes unwieldy in some instances when so many states are involved. But it's also part of the democratic process because it gives an opportunity for everybody to be in the same place and to be able to voice their concerns and negotiate. It seems like a lot of pressure as it relates to the climate conference specifically for nations to comply with obligations would be coming from public attention. Is that something that you've noticed? Is it more an idea of the people paying attention that truly puts on the pressure? 
I think so. And especially the younger generation is really asking governments to do more because they will be affected much more than the current generation because it's their future that is in jeopardy because of climate consequences. And scientists have definitely said that the consequences will be worse in the future than what we are seeing now. And there was a recent report which said that States have to go carbon neutral by 2034. The earlier date that was given by scientists was 2050 to go carbon neutral, but they have advanced that date to 2034 because these consequences are happening faster than expected. So that does not leave us much time to go carbon neutral, basically 10 years to do that. So I think there's increased public attention to the issue, but especially by the younger generation, they are calling upon states to do much more because they are facing a pretty bleak future. And do you think that carbon neutral goal is workable? And if so, what strategies do you think would be most effective to make that happen? The good news is that we know what we have to do, like switching to renewables, cleaner transportation, being more efficient with what we are doing, more energy efficient, going for better public transportation and things like that, more electric cars. But we are not doing it fast enough and we are not doing enough to help developing countries to improve their living standards and do it in a sustainable way. Unfortunately, the window of opportunity is getting closer, but technology is there and we have the know-how. It's just that it has become a huge political issue as well, unfortunately. So there's not enough action and it's not fast enough. As an attendee, what are the main issues that you'll be focusing on? What are your goals for this year's conference? The loss and damage mechanism, I think, is going to be an important issue because this is where some of the small island states have been lobbying for because they are at the receiving end of climate action. They are at the ground zero of climate action, actually. Some of the islands will become uninhabitable in 10 to 15 years' time. So they have been lobbying since negotiations began in early 1990s to have a mechanism to help them cope with some of these irreversible consequences. So a fund was established at LASCOP in Egypt to help with these loss and damage uh, damages that some of these countries are experiencing. But the details have not been worked out. So I'm hoping that some of the details will be worked out. There will be more contributions coming into the fund at this COP. And also, I'm hoping that climate justice and human rights will feature more prominently, but I'm not very hopeful about that because in the past, it has been quite controversial. And one of the things that I'm hoping will happen is that the major emitters will take more responsibility to address climate change and improve or advance their ambition of emission reduction. So that we'll be able to meet the goal of going carbon neutral. For folks who will be following along as the conference happens in Dubai, what things do you think that they should look out for? What should people pay attention to? 
I think people should pay attention to the fact that this is a global problem. And although we tend to think that these small island states are far away and, you know, far away from us, we are in this together, whether we are in Wisconsin or in Dubai or, you know, in the Maldives or Tuvalu, everybody will be affected by climate change, of course, to different degrees. I think in Wisconsin, we are better off than most people around the world. But even in the United States, people are being relocated due to climate change. People are awaiting relocation like communities in Alaska. So nobody's immune or nobody will escape the consequences of climate change. So it's important to look at this issue because all of us are affected. All of us will be more affected in the future. Each of us has a responsibility to address climate change in the way we can. But of course, we also need to hold our policymakers accountable for much bigger action because, you know, big action has to come from the government level. For folks who do want to get involved on a local level, for example, here in Dane County, what would you recommend? There are lots of things that we can do, starting with recycling, which all of us do. And we are, you know, it's automatic. Every two weeks we put recycling. But at the same time, you know, even things we do on a daily basis, like even our diet has an impact. I'm not saying that the government should dictate what we eat, (laughs) but being aware of our carbon footprint in the global north is very important. Try and go for solar energy if possible, you know, and also our electronic waste. We are used to needing (laughs) the latest electronic gadget. I mean, do we really need all that? So there are lots of things that we can do to reduce our carbon footprint. The decisions we make have an impact thousands of miles away and into the future. It's really the future generations, our children and grandchildren, who will be affected more by the decisions we make today, as well as the smaller communities and states that contributed least to the problem that will be affected the most. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Sumudu. Thank you so much for having me. That was Professor Sumudu Atapatu director of the Global Legal Studies Center at UW-Madison Law School. She shared her perspective on the annual United Nations Climate Conference, which she's attending in Dubai later this week. She says that human rights and climate change are inextricably tied, and the nations of the world need to prepare. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Just over a week ago, a neo-Nazi gang marched through downtown Madison, not far from the UW campus. On this week's edition of Cardinal Call, feature contributor Gavin Escott spoke to Francesca Pica, the Daily Cardinal City News Editor, to discuss campus reactions to the incident. Hello, and welcome to the Cardinal Call, 
your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student Newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hiwan Lim. In the aftermath of the October 7th attacks in Israel, the United States has seen an alarming increase in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. This was brought into stark reality last week when a neo-Nazi group marched down State Street, shocking Madison and campus. Today, we're joined by our city news editor, Francesca Pica, to discuss the march and campus reactions. Frankie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you give me an overview of this event? What were these participants saying? Yeah, so this was Saturday, November 18th. A group of about, I would say, 20 neo-Nazi protesters, they marched up State Street and came up to the Capitol Square. And at the Capitol Square, they would hold up flags with swastikas on them. They would do the Hitler salute. And they would just say things like, there will be blood. And Israel is not our friend. And specifically, it was in the context of this far-right rap. And so they were making it pretty clear that they were basically intimidating and showing their strength against the Jewish population of Madison. And it was pretty short demonstration at the Capitol. And like I said, there were only about 20 of them. But after they'd finished their rally at the Capitol Square, they then marched down towards James Madison Park. And footage posted on social media indicates that they stopped near a synagogue in that area as well. What did they do at the synagogue? It seems that they were just in the area, but they didn't seem to have broken any laws. They didn't seem to enter the synagogue or anything like that, but they were definitely in the presence of that synagogue. In the past month, campus has been awash in demonstrations in support of Israel and in support of Palestine. Was this group affiliated with any campus group? No, this is not a campus group, nor are they related to any campus groups. This is a far-right neo-Nazi group that was formed a few years ago, and it has small chapters throughout the country. So this is not something that is directly related to UW-Madison or to any campus organizations. So this march isn't happening on campus? It didn't happen on campus, no. It happened up State Street and at the Capitol Square. So university police couldn't do anything about it? No, this was not in their jurisdiction. And as far as I've been told by law enforcement, they were there legally. They did not break any laws. And there were police present at the Capitol Square while they were having their rally. But they couldn't do anything. At least that's what they said, because they were not breaking any laws. They were there legally. Many students on social media reported feeling upset over the perception the police were protecting the group instead of shutting them down. What did Madison police say was their approach to the situation? They said in a post on their social media account that they denounced any expressions of hate, like kind of what was displayed at the rally. But under the First Amendment, this type of speech is protected. And as far as we know, they were legally permitted to have their rally there. And so the police didn't have any legal justification for taking action against them to shut them down. For many demonstrations across Madison, organizers advertised the event beforehand, which is how we know to cover it. For this, were you aware the event was going to happen? How were you able to report so quickly? Yeah, so we were definitely caught off guard. We did not know this was happening in advance. So we caught wind of it when a member of our organization was on State Street at the time, and he... A Daily Cardinal member. Uh, yes, a Daily Cardinal member, and he spotted them marching up State Street, and he alerted us to it, and so I was able to go there as soon as we were made aware of the fact that they were going to be marching up toward the Capitol. It was definitely very unexpected. It was not how I was planning to spend my (laughs) Saturday morning. Um, But yeah, we were able to get on it pretty quickly because we had such a large team of people just in the Madison area and kind of having their eyes out for stuff like that. 
with neo-Nazis marching down State Street, this quickly became viral and misinformation percolated online. What do we actually know about this group? This group appears to be a neo-Nazi national organization called the Blood Tribe. It was founded in 2020 online by a former U.S. Marine named Christopher Polhouse, and it has multiple small chapters throughout the country. It seems that this Blood Tribe is not only explicitly anti-Semitic, it is also very transphobic and homophobic. They have been doing a lot of demonstrations outside of specifically LGBTQ events, such as drag shows or pride-related events. Earlier this summer, the Blood Tribe demonstrated in Watertown, Wisconsin, in front of a pride event. And they also, just like they did at the Capitol, they had swastika flags and they shouted homophobic slurs at the participants of the event. The founder, Christopher Polhouse, he has very distinct facial tattoos. And based on who we were able to identify at the rally, because most of the attendants were wearing masks, there were only two people that were unmasked. One of them appears to have been him. Has this group demonstrated in Madison before? Not that I'm aware of. Like I said, they definitely have a presence in Wisconsin, as demonstrated by their march in Watertown this summer. But they are a pretty recently formed group, and it appears that they're not super big. At least their presence in Madison is not super big. There are only about 20 people there. So they appear to be... Limited in scope? Yeah. I just want to emphasize that the Blood Tribe has no affiliation with any pro-Palestinian activism, either on campus, in Madison, in Wisconsin at all. This is a far-right neo-Nazi group. They have chapters across the country. This has nothing to do with Palestinian activism on campus or off campus. Like, it's completely separate. With this group marching down the heart of the city, there was a huge impact for a lot of people, especially as this is coming at a time of heightened emotions over the Israel-Hamas war. You talked to some of the people who witnessed this event. What were their reactions? I spoke with a Jewish UW-Madison student who was at James Madison Park and witnessed them marching in the area. And she just said that it just contributes to this feeling that there's just a lot of marginalization of Jewish people. And the presence of this far-right group just exemplifies kind of that feeling it's not like truly safe for them. Did the university do anything in response to this to address student concerns? Yeah, so the university, Chancellor Jennifer Manukin put out a statement condemning the neo-Nazi march, as did many other student organizations, including UW-Hillel. And the university offered counseling and listening sessions as services in the aftermath. It's difficult just because over break, some of the students were not in Madison, and so maybe it could have been difficult for them to kind of get that support from the university because they were not on campus at that time. But that is kind of the extent of what the university did in response. It's just difficult because it wasn't something directly on campus that they really could have influence over, but it was still so close to campus that obviously it had a huge impact on a lot of students. Was there anything else you learned over the course of your reporting? I suppose how these organizations like the Blood Tribe function, it feels like they use the fact that there's nothing the city or the university can really do to actively remove them or shut them down to kind of spread their message or to make themselves known or to gain attention. You know, they were standing on Capitol Square shouting these incredibly violent statements and there were definitely a few people on the Capitol shouting back at them 
or pushing against their message. But they were standing just straight out on the square and nothing could be done to get them off. They were there legally. They didn't break any laws in the process of their march. And so it it just seems that they know how to kind of spread their hateful message without consequences for them because they were all in masks except for two of them who are already identified they kind of understand how to do stuff like this how to intimidate people how to spread their violent incredibly hateful rhetoric without receiving any actual consequences for their actions whether that be being arrested for being openly violent or breaking any laws or having their faces shown where people can see who they are and actually reach them in their actual lives. It feels like they've they've learned how to play that game almost. Do you feel that local leaders push back on this adequately? In addition to Chancellor Mnuchin and a lot of the University of Wisconsin campus organizations, the city and the state really did kind of denounce this group. Soon after the rally, Governor Tony Evers put out a statement condemning the rally. He said that hate has no place in Wisconsin. In addition, many city leaders, including Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, also denounced the rally as well. So this was not something that kind of just flew under the radar for the city, you know, in part because of how dramatic it was to see them at the state capitol. And in addition to a lot of the media coverage it got, it did seem to really get the attention of a lot of officials, and they did push back on it pretty forcefully. Frankie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And in other campus news, Engineering Hall is reopened for classes after a fire spread through the building before Thanksgiving break. Firefighters said the fire which prompted the cancellation of classes, started due to poor maintenance of an air handling unit, and was unintentional. And in other news, the Wisconsin women's volleyball team swept number one Nebraska on Friday, triumphing over the Cornhuskers that dethroned Wisconsin from number one earlier this season. The Badgers now turn their focus to the NCAA tournament starting this weekend, where they'll look to win their second national championship in three seasons. Wisconsin will host the first two rounds of the Wisconsin quarter of the bracket as the Badgers earn the third overall seed in the tournament, and they will face Jackson State on Thursday at the Fieldhouse. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com, especially the Fall Action Project, which is on stance now. The Fall Action Project, the DIY issue, examines the various forms of community in Wisconsin and the Madison area. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. How have tree frogs helped human invention and industry? Jackie Sandberg will tell us in tonight's edition of Wildlife Weekly. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about tree frogs. We actually admitted our first tree frog of the fall and winter season, and it's always an exciting time because they're such little magical, cute critters, and we love them, but we don't see them too often. It might be a couple times a year. 
And tree frogs are well known for being everywhere in Wisconsin. They just seem to be hiding really well. So I'm not sure if you've ever seen a tree frog, but I want to talk about the gray tree frog, which is in the family Hylidae. It's very common in all counties of Wisconsin, and they are only about one to two inches long. So they're pretty small. They look like they are a very gray mottled color, so they kind of blend in with some of the regular leaves or the bark of trees, which is actually where they are going to hang out, especially during the wintertime, because that's where they would be going into what's called a brumation, which is kind of like a hibernation, but for frogs, where they can get down to excellent temperatures, freezing temperatures, and have almost like an antifreeze in their dynamics. Like the way that they're able to survive is getting down to low enough temperatures to freeze, but not actually freeze. It's actually the way that they mobilize their glucogen and their glycogen and their glucose in their body. And all of that helps them to survive a very low temperature kind of semi-hibernation, so to speak. It's really neat. It's an amazing thing that not a lot of other creatures can actually do. And the, the gray tree frog is one of those that has been well studied for it. So although right now they are probably entering that period of time and it's getting down to freezing temperatures where they are brumating and in trees, it doesn't mean that you're not going to find them because a lot of folks, especially in our area in Wisconsin, probably have some wonderful potted plants outside and it's the time of year you start to bring them inside because you want to make sure that they don't freeze and that you don't lose your plants. And the soil that can be in a lot of those potted plants can also be sometimes a really nice spot for a gray tree frog to decide to hide. Or maybe the plant itself is tree-like enough that they want to, you know, stay there for the winter. And when you bring in that plant, you find a tree frog somewhere in the fall and the winter time. And you're like, oh no, there's snow on the ground. I don't think a tree frog can really go back there. So that's probably the most common reason that we see tree frogs at this time of year. But we also, you know, it's one of those things as rehabilitators where we don't want to send that animal out into freezing temperatures if they're fully unprepared, especially if they have any sort of injuries as well. So we typically seem to keep those frogs over winter and release them until the spring when it's a little bit warmer out and when they have adequate temperatures to be acting normally so that they have their own time to prepare for brumation in the winter. So that's the typical rehabilitation assistance, I would say, at this time of year in our state. Otherwise, the cool thing about tree frogs, and I wanted to talk about this a little more in depth on this radio segment, is that they have toe pads that are like little suction cups. So they're so different than other frogs. I just, I love it. It is so cool. They have these little suction cups at the ends of each of their toes, and it really helps them to stick onto surfaces and climb vertically and to jump really far too. They act as these little suction cups and the suction cups themselves of the toes are actually really intricate. There are some studies out there that have looked at the physiological features of their toes, especially because looking at those and studying those from a biological perspective has made for advances in human technologies. When we're talking about suction cups for windows and cars and other things, like it's actually a thing that is studied to see how can we replicate the tree frog toes to make something better in, you know, our world from a manufacturing perspective. I think that's pretty neat. So their toe pads are actually a polygon shape on the underside, and they're really tiny polygons that also then have a central pillar of these really small kind of capillary-like structures. So it kind of reminds me of a little like tower inside of a tower filled with all these really small grooves that have space between. And so what it does is it reduces the surface pressure and then added on top, they secrete a mucus. 
And so if you've ever done something where you've put two pieces of glass together and there's water in between, I think that's the best way to kind of describe how it sticks. So for us, you know, I think of a microscope slide and two of them being stuck together by some water because it got wet. It's hard to pull that apart. So it's similar to getting a suction cup wet and sticking it to your window. That really comes from probably tree frogs because they secrete that mucus that helps them to be able to cling. And so it's a just it's a really neat thing where it's a very flexible toe cup. It's not stiff at all. It's actually one of the softest biological materials. And the way that it interlocks with the flexibility of those polygons and then the surface pattern that, you know, creates those little pillars on the inside of those polygons really is what makes it so that it can squish to a surface, add on the suction cups so that you have these forces that are kind of keeping it together, just static forces, similar to, again, using water to stick with surfaces and being able to then stay onto a surface and move very quickly. So I think it's really neat. There's a lot more that could go into studying probably the secretions from tree frogs, you know, toes. It's just an amazing science. And I think a kudos to all the folks out there who research amphibians because they have some amazing features that, you know, just wow me every time I, I think about them or talk about them. So that's a little bit about our tree frog here, great tree frog in Wisconsin. And uh, yes, we do take them in for rehabilitation at Dane County Humane Society. So if you find one sick, injured, or, you know, in your house in a potted plant <laughs> sometime this winter, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, thanks for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency estimates that agriculture contributes nearly 11% of the nation's total greenhouse gas emissions. You might think that conservation programs looking to reduce these emissions would be readily available to farmers. Not so, according to a new in-depth report from Investigate Midwest. WORT's Monday 8 o'clock Buzz host, Brian Standing, spoke to Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporter Madeline Heim, who contributed to that investigation. And Madeline joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock Buzz. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit of the programs that we're looking at in particular are the Environmental Quality and Incentives Program and the Conservation Stewardship Program. What do these programs do? These two programs called EQIP and CSP, those are kind of their colloquial names, a little bit of alphabet soup, but yeah, they are the two most used programs from the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. So they essentially help farmers make changes on their land to protect the land itself. The best thing that I've heard to describe the two programs is that EQIP is like menu items on a restaurant. CSP would be the whole restaurant. So EQIP fixes individual problems on someone's land. So for example, you know, a manure management facility, something like that. CSP is kind of a reward system where producers that are all already undergoing conservation practices like cover crops are wanting to expand and kind of bring the rest of their farm into cover crops again, for example, and then they get money and kind of a reward for doing so. So they're both kind of two different types of programs to help farmers improve the land that they're on, but they are, again, the, the two most popular programs of the USDA NRCS. And what are some of the environmental benefits of these programs? 
Yeah, so they can really do a lot. They can reduce soil erosion. They can improve nearby streams and wetlands. They can even have, you know, some climate change impacts. Like, for example, if, you know, let's take agroforestry. If a farmer is interested in planting some trees on a part of his land that does not, you know, produce as well, those trees would store carbon and that would be overall better for the environment. So, yeah, in in our story, we had pointed to a 2020 NRCS report just looking at equip conservation actions between 2014 and 2018, but that report found that they increased soil and carbon retained in the farm fields and then provided wildlife habitat, which obviously are all very good things when we're thinking about how agriculture kind of exists on the land. These programs are very, very desired by farmers. There are hundreds of thousands of farmers that apply for them every year. In our story, we requested some data from the USDA between the fiscal years 2018 and 2022, and only about three in 10 of the farmers that applied for these programs got funded. In Wisconsin, those numbers are a little bit better. For fiscal year 2022, it was 37% of people who applied for the EQIP funds got their application funded and 35% of CSP. And it's worth noting, too, that, you know, our state and our CS folks do say that there's a discrepancy in how the state tracks it and that EQIP may be more like 50%. But still, I mean, that's half uh, half of producers getting turned down of farmers who, who really, really want this. Why are farmers getting turned down? Is it just uh, they're out of money? Part of it is certainly lack of funding for so many farmers who are interested in these programs. Another thing that I heard, you know, speaking with Wisconsin agriculture folks is that NRCS staff are pretty understaffed at the moment. And then, you know, another layer that I found really interesting is that, you know, without enough staff, there's not enough time for them to walk farmers and landowners through the process. A farmer will submit an application, but it may not have been tailored, you know, exactly to the way that gets these applications funded. So you also talk about in your story about how this lack of funding and lack of staff ability to sort of tailor these applications and assist people through the application process is hitting African-American farmers in particularly hard. Why is that? Is that a sort of just a, a holdover of historic and institutional discrimination or is there something else happening? I don't think I'm able to answer that fully, but I think that it certainly is partially a product of what has happened with the USDA and black farmers in the past. So just a couple of quick statistics about prevalence of black farm owners throughout the U.S. There were just under 50,000 black farmers across the U.S., according to the most recent Census of Agriculture, which is now a few years old, but that's about 1.4% of the country's producers. And in Wisconsin, according to that same census, just 76 farms had producers that identified as Black or African-American, and that's out of almost 65,000 farms in the state. And one thing I wanted to point out, there was a study last year by the American Economic Association that pointed out that Black farmers have lost $326 billion in land between 1920 and 1997. And that kind of gets at this very painful history of discrimination that can impact some of the outreach for these programs. All right. We've been speaking with Milwaukee Journal Sentinel Report for America Corps member Madeline Heim. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. Thanks for having me. 
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein-Wilson. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin Escott, and Hewan Lim, 8 o'clock buzz host Brian Standing, and Wisconsin News Connections Mike Mullen. Super Dave Lawrence and engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with a nice show patio. Good night. Thank you.